Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Beautiful, sunshiny day, and you're inside here in a gym. Love it. Dedication. Uh, if you're new here, my name is uh, Jeremy. I'm one of our campus pastors at Central, uh, pastoring in our Harrison campus, which we're going to be launching this September. Very excited about that. But yeah, I get to be with you guys this morning, so it's great to be here. I want to start by telling you a true story that I heard from a congregant uh, a few years ago about his grandmother. So this man's grandmother, I'll just call her Grandma, I don't actually know her name, she lived in Verdon, Manitoba. Verdon's a small highway town on Highway 1, and a lot of Grandma's family lived in the same town. Actually, her sister lived just outside the back door, down the alley, one house, and then right across the alley. So Grandma and her sister could literally talk to each other from their back porches. And things were good. Grandma and her family, uh, although they didn't attend church, they would have identified as believers, but they had a good family uh, relationship. One day, though, Grandma got into a discussion with her sister, and things got heated, and they escalated, and they got louder until there was silence. And it was over 20 years later when that silence was broken because grandma's sister lay on her deathbed. You know what the worst part about this whole fight was? The discussion they had was over who would host Thanksgiving supper. Oh, not good. I would have gladly let... My sister hosted, right? Like, why fight about it? You, you take care of that. This morning, we're continuing in our family dynamics series, taking a look at broken relationships. We've been intermittently going through this series and, and come back to it today. But as we've all experienced, unfortunately, even, even as believers, even in a church setting, often broken relationships can abound, whether that's in church or in family or friendships, even work relationships. So often, for whatever reason, we get into these, these scenarios where things get complicated and all of a sudden there's conflict. And relationships that maybe were, were so close in the past are, are severed. And so this morning, I want to take a look at Scripture and see what the Word of God says about broken relationships. So I invite you all to stand as we read our scripture for this morning from John 13, verses 34 to 35. This is Jesus speaking. John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You can grab a seat. So my uh, outline for this morning is is fairly simple. I want to first of all take a look at the reason for broken relationships, then take a look at our heart's response to broken relationship, and then our hand's response to broken relationships. Let me pray for us as we dive in deeper. Jesus, thank you for 
the opportunity to worship you here this morning. Uh, thank you for your word and how it's living and active. Father, I pray that you would speak to us uh, by your spirit this morning, Lord, uh, that you would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us in our faith and, and challenge us in, in ways that we need to uh, grow in our relationships with you. Um, but would you point us to you, Lord, through your word at this time? We love you and pray this all in your name. Amen. So number one, the, the reason for broken relationships. If we took a look at like the whole of scripture, we would see that broken relationships abound from beginning to end. I'll start very close to the end of scripture. The book of Jude, Jude, the brother of Jesus, wrote to a congregation originally wanting to write about the joy of our salvation. And yet he had to pivot completely and address inner struggles in the church with false teachers. If we back up some more, the Apostle Paul dealt with this church that ah, they had their share of issues. I'm talking about the Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he has to address the church because there's believers who are so upset with one another that they're taking each other to court. And Paul just says this, this should not be. We back up further into the Old Testament. We see someone who is held quite highly in Scripture, a man after God's own heart. In 2 Samuel 11, King David, because of his sexual lust, destroys the marriage of Uriah and Bathsheba and then goes on to take Uriah's life. And finally, if we back up all the way to Genesis 3, we see the first story of broken relationship where Adam and Eve, because of their pride, maybe their, their doubt in God's goodness, they break relationship with God and they disobey a living God and listen to the temptation of a snake. And so we have from the very beginning this 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 pattern of brokenness, of, of shame and separation that we experience all the way to today. Now, I think other than like the rare psycho or maybe a con man, when we go into a relationship, we, we truly do seek its good, right? When we, we invest in it, we put time and effort into relationship, we don't put all of that work into it desiring its demise, we, we desire for those relationships to be successful. And yet, how often does the opposite happen? So why is that? The Apostle Paul spends a significant amount of time in, in Romans 5 to 8 dealing with the issue of sin. In the first half of Romans 7, Paul explains how sin is sneaky and opportunistic and it takes the law, which is, is something good, but then it twists it and attempts to use it for evil. And what happens is this, this inner war that rages within us. I'm going to read Romans 7, 15 to 20 for us. For I do not understand my own actions, writes Paul. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Points make, uh, Paul's making a, an important point here uh, throughout Romans, but especially here in that we are corrupted by sin. Even though we might desire good, often because of our sinful nature, it's, it's the opposite that comes out. And so the, the sobering reality is that you and I are the cause for broken relationship because of our sinful nature. Now, we don't always like to take credit for our sin, right? Especially when it comes to conflict, we like to, to cast the blame on the other party. But it's so important that we start with ourselves. Um, up until uh, a year just over a year ago, I uh, was pastoring in a church in, in Winkler, Manitoba. I spent four and a half years there. And the church there was uh, like any other. It was a church full of sinners in need of God's grace. And during our time there, we saw um, times where there was great fruit that God bore. And there were also times when we dealt with some significant unhealth. And at one point in the, the church's history, there's a point where it seemed like there's almost an exodus from the church. Every week we heard of someone new that was leaving the church because of some of the conflict that was going on. At that time, uh, there's a lady who I'll call Rochelle, who she came into my office. And Rochelle was just a wonderful woman. She served in the church in many different ways, on a committee, teaching women's Bible study. She just had this, this incredible servant heart. She loved others. She loved the Lord dearly and was evident in, in everything that she did. And she would often swing by the church office and, and we'd have some good, deep conversations. I remember this one day she had come by and we're having another one of these, these conversations and uh, talking about the state of the church. And uh, I asked her, so Rochelle, where are you at? Are you going to stick it out here or are you also going to head out and, and go to another church? And her answer surprised me. She told me, you know what? I'm, I'm scared to leave. And my first assumption was, oh, I guess... You're scared of encountering something new. You have so many relationships in the church. You don't know maybe how you'll build a new community in a new church or, or what, I don't know, maybe the preaching or the worship you like. But she went on to clarify, no, I'm scared if I go to another church, I will bring the unhealth to a new church. And that really stuck out to me because Rochelle was 
like one of the most positive, loving contributors in the church, and yet she recognized that her sinful flesh was also part of the problem at the church. And that's the case for each one of us. <clears throat> as, we, as we seek to deal with broken relationships in our lives, the first thing we need to do rather than, than pointing a finger at others is seeing where we have done wrong. Where is our broken relation? Where is our sin? And how do we deal, first of all, with, with our sin with God? Right? We are a contributor to broken relationships because we first severed our relationship with God, and, and that is what needs healing first. And so we have to fix that vertical relationship before we go to attempt to fix horizontal relationships with others. Secondly, we, we have to recognize that we can't fix broken relationships between one another on our own. We are totally dependent on, on Christ to work in our hearts and to work in other hearts. And we're dependent on his work on the cross. Listen to a quote by John Henderson, uh, pastor and author of the book, Catching Foxes. There are no secrets that guarantee problem-free relationships. We all look for strategies or techniques that will free us from the pain of relationships and the hard work good relationships demand. We hope that better planning and more effective communication Clear role definitions, conflict resolution strategies, gender studies, and, and personality typing, to name just a few, will make the difference. There may be value in these things, but if they were all we needed, then Jesus' life, death, and resurrection would be unnecessary or at best redundant. Skills and techniques appeal to us because they promise that relational problems can be fixed by just tweaking our behavior without altering the bent of our hearts. But the Bible says something very different. It says that Christ is the only hope for relationships because only he can dig deep enough to address the core motivations and desires of our hearts. Only Jesus can bring complete healing in our lives. Only he can bring that restoration because he's got to deal with our own sin, with the own ugliness and rottenness in our hearts before we can go and then attempt to bring resolution and restoration with other relationships. The amazing thing is that there's no lack in the cross. Jesus has made a way and through his death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins and can seek that forgiveness with others as well. With that gospel foundation, I want to give us two responses that we can take to broken relationships. The first one is our, our heart's response to broken relationships. And I, as I just started to touch on, we have to deal with sin and we have to use uh, forgiveness, <laughs> right? It's through Christ's work on the cross that we're forgiven of our sin. But then as we respond to others in broken relationships, 
there's this, this matter of us forgiving others, of us surrendering that to Christ. We maybe can't uh, control what the other person does, but we can, res- we can control our response to that person. And then whether we hold on to the hurt or we release that and just give that over to God. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 6 gives a powerful warning about forgiveness. This is Matthew 6, verses 14 to 15, right at the end of the Lord's Prayer. He says that, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, this is how crucially important it is that we forgive others and don't hold on to unforgiveness or bitterness. I'd love to make these verses easier or more palatable, but that's not what Scripture tells us. The only extent we can go to is to say that we earn God's forgiveness through our work of forgiving others. That's not the case. We we don't earn God's salvation in any way. That's a free gift. But in a large way, Jesus is telling us that his forgiveness of us hinges on us forgiving others. Let me try and clarify this point a little further with a parable that Jesus shares in Matthew 18, later on in that gospel. And I'll be reading this out of the, the New Living Translation, Matthew 18, 23 to 35. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, everything that he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. I'll pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and he released him and forgave his debt. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him just a few thousand dollars, minuscule amount in comparison. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me. I I will pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid the entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. 
let me be blunt. Jesus here in this parable, when he's talking about this prison, he's referring to hell. He's referring to eternal separation from a loving God who is so willing to forgive us a host of sins. And yet, through our unforgiveness of others, we can end up there because we aren't able then to receive God's forgiveness for us. Someone who does not grant forgiveness to others shows that in his own heart, he hasn't experienced God's forgiveness. I'm going to share with you uh, a story from a book called The Devil in Pew Number 7. In 1969, a young girl named uh, Rebecca Nichols and her family, they moved to Sellerston, North Carolina, so that Rebecca's father, Robert, could serve at the Free Welcome Holiness Church as a pastor. Robert and his family were warmly embraced by everyone in the church, with one exception. Glaring at him from pew number seven was a man obsessed with controlling the church. That man was Mr. Horry Watts. Mr. Watts was well off and and well connected. He was used to calling the shots in the church. That is until Robert began pastoring there. When Pastor Robert didn't fulfill Mr. Watts' every whim, Mr. Watts did everything within his power to drive him out of town. Mr. Watts was every pastor's nightmare. He would point at his watch if he thought Pastor Robert had been preaching too long. I don't see any of you doing that here so far, so I think I'm good to continue. Thank you. If Robert didn't end his sermon shortly after that, uh, Mr. Watts would get up, He'd walk out and he'd slam the door behind him. The church actually had to replace the doors so that he couldn't slam them on his way out. But this only served to make Mr. Watts even madder. Yet, this was only the beginning. Mr. Watts worked his way up to harassing phone calls and threatening letters. When those didn't work, he resorted to drive-by shootings When even that didn't work, he began to plant dynamite around the church and the house and set up explosions about around this family. Although the Nichols knew who was terrorizing them, they couldn't prove it. And the police moved painstakingly slow on the case. But instead of watching her parents take this into their own hands, Rebecca watched her parents pray for Mr. Watts that this hard-hearted man would come to know Jesus. Although there would be breaks from the harassment, even months of relative calm at times, the fear of the next explosion, it just tormented Rebecca. I had a hard time sleeping at night, she recalls. I would always crawl into my parents' bed At night as a little girl, I could look out my bedroom window and I could see Mr. Watts pacing back and forth in front of our house, plotting his next move. He stalked our family, she writes in the book. After every effort to run the Nichols out of town failed, the unthinkable happened. 
Mr. Watts knew that the Nichols were taking care of a woman who was seeking shelter from her abusive family. And so he talked the husband into taking care of the Nichols. So one evening, this man walked into the Nichols house and shot Rebecca's mother and father. With her mother lying dead in the next room and her father seriously wounded from a gunshot, Rebecca fled to a neighbor's house for help. Rebecca says that the years of anxiety and torment and the loss of his beloved wife took a severe toll on her father, physically and mentally. And Mr. Nichols died a few short years later from a blood clot. He was only 46. Both Mr. Watts and the shooter, they did eventually serve jail time for their crimes. And then one day out of the blue, Rebecca, who at the time was 17 years old, she received a surprising phone call from Mr. Watts. He said, I can't live the rest of my life without knowing if you've forgiven me or not. And Rebecca replied, Mr. Watts, my brother and I forgave you a long time ago. Mr. Watts just sat there and wept. When people ask, Rebecca, how did you do it? How, how did you forgive this evil man? She replies that she was only able to forgive because of the revelation that she received about how Jesus forgave her on the cross. You know, some of you may ex have experienced deep hurt in your life. Maybe very close relationships that have been severed in years past, maybe throughout the past couple of years, maybe it's even more recent. What Scripture clearly calls us to is that regardless of the size of the offense, we're called to forgive because our offense against God is, is so much greater. And yet God went to such lengths, giving his one and only son to forgive us that debt. If such great mercy was shown to us, how can't we show just a, a small fraction of that to others? So forgiveness is, is absolutely crucial. But we can go beyond this. And so the last point I want to tackle this morning is, is now our, our hands response to broken relationships. I want to go back to our initial text, John 13, verses 34 to 35. A new command I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Part of this love includes humble service to those even where there might be broken relationship. I find it fascinating the setting in which Jesus uttered these words to his disciples. See, if he had just been out on a, you know, a pleasant picnic, they were out on some all-inclusive holiday in Mexico, okay, it, it might be easier to say, well, yeah, in the good times, then I'll, then I'll humbly serve others, then I'll, then I'll love on others. But that's not the case. 
we back up to the beginning of the chapter, we get some context for what's going on here. This is John 13, verses 1 to 2. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. See, Jesus' words that we should love one another just as he's loved us come at the hardest moment in his life. He's hours before heading to the cross and he's sitting there with his disciples. There's Thomas, who will doubt him in in just a few days. There's Peter, who will deny that he even knows him that very evening. And then we've got Judas, a man who will betray Jesus unto death. And yet, what does Jesus do with these men? You know, does he uh, disown them first? Does he throw the first punch? Quite the opposite. Verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus goes on to to actually very practically demonstrate his love for his disciples. Even Judas, the man that will betray him to death. And he does one of the, the humblest acts of service in that time. We don't practice foot washing regularly or, or maybe hardly ever here in our context. But in first century Palestine, this was a task that was reserved for non-Jewish slaves. It was the most menial of all tasks. It would be like, I don't know, think of a... Uh, an important leader, someone that you very much respect, coming into your house and then going into your, your, your bathroom that's not for guests, maybe it's your ensuite, and then cleaning your toilet and, and going into your shower and pulling out all that disgusting hair that gets clogged up there. Ugh. We wouldn't, you wouldn't ever dream, right, of, of someone you respect, of a, of a powerful leader doing that, and yet... This is Jesus, the son of the almighty God, all-knowing, all-powerful. And he humbles himself to that extent. He he demonstrates his love right before he goes to his death to his disciples at the Last Supper. Lest we think that, uh, you know, that sort of service is below us. That was just Jesus. We don't actually have to do this. Uh, He calls us to do this pretty clearly in verse 15. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. You know, 
we, uh, we need to acknowledge that in broken relationships, there can be power imbalances that actually make it unwise to, to maybe continue contact or to, to humbly serve someone in that way. But outside of those few situations, we're called to, to serve others, to demonstrate our love for others through humble service. Even to those who've hurt us. Now, this can be completely against our, our flesh, right? We would far rather go the other way and, and not have anything to do with them, but counterculturally turning and following Jesus' example, this can be such a, a massive way to demonstrate God's love for others. Beyond uh, serving that person, there's freedom, I believe, in doing that. That act of forgiveness, it's, it's not lacking as we forgive others. God forgives us. But that act of service, the, the work of our hands, that can confirm the work of our hearts in that work of forgiveness and love on even those who've hurt us. Most importantly, uh, this type of response, it's really a, a picture of the gospel, Right? Were we sinners hurt God? We, we are responsible for nailing him on a cross. And yet, despite our sin, despite our persecution, despite the humiliation that he went through, he was willing to love us, to serve us. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. May we be a, a model of Christ's love through our forgiveness and through the work of our hands. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for paying the price of our sins on the cross. Thank you for reconciling us to God, making a way for us to be saved and restoring the broken relationship that, that we had with you. So grateful for your work. So grateful, Lord, for uh, your Spirit's work in our hearts and how you long for us to dwell in, in peace and unity and how we can do that um, with others as you work in our hearts. So, Lord Jesus, would you, would you help us to pursue your example, uh, to love one another, and to point ourselves, to point others to you and the gospel as we do so. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your name. Amen. This morning, uh, we're going to be partaking in communion. Uh, if you didn't grab a, a cup and a wafer on your way in, uh, maybe quickly do that now or put your hand up and someone will get you one. We want to remember uh, in a very physical way Jesus' sacrifice and, and what he's done for us. In uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about how God sent Jesus to reconcile us with God. And through what Jesus did, uh, he, uh, he became sin so that he who knew no sin through him, we might become the righteousness of God. And so it's through Jesus 
death and resurrection, that we can have restored relationship with God. I'm going to read a couple verses each time, and then we'll partake of the elements. And after we partake of each one, I'm going to give maybe 30 seconds just for us to reflect on what uh, Christ has done for us. So this is 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 24. Apostle gives, the Apostle Paul gives instructions on how to partake in communion. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance for me. This wafer represents Christ's body broken for us. Let's eat it in remembrance of him. In the same way, verse 25, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup represents Christ's blood shed for us. Let's drink together in remembrance of him.